listening to the Frugal Spender podcast, where we have conversations about the one thing you've always been told not to talk about, personal finance. Hey guys, and welcome back to the Frugal Spender podcast. This is episode number 51. And today I'm sharing with you my conversation with Anne Lester. Anne has worked on all aspects of retirement for over 28 years. And most recently, she spent 20 years as head of retirement solutions for JP Morgan Asset Management. She has a wealth of experience and knowledge around retirement and pensions, amongst many other financial subjects. I really enjoyed my conversation with Anne, and I think you will too. It really left me with plenty to think about. So here is my conversation with Anne Lester. Anne, welcome to the Frugal Spender podcast. How are you? I'm very well. How are you? Yeah, good. We we're just talking about how I appreciate you coming. You're from the US, so we've got a bit of a time difference. So I'm glad we uh, got to work out a time to sit down and talk about you and uh, your new book. Thank you. I'm excited to talk about that. Good. So Anne, if people aren't familiar with who you are, would you mind just giving a bit of a background, just a brief from sort of what got you into what you do and what you've done sort of work-wise, what led you up to to writing this book? Yeah, so uh, the long-ish but not too long story is I got interested in finance when I was a teenager, actually. I'm the only person I know who grew up saying, I want to be an investment banker. (laughs) Um, And I was reading, there was a genre called financial thrillers, which I don't think exists anymore, but I was reading like novels about foreign exchange trading in the 70s. thought it was very glamorous. So I wanted to be in finance. Um, I kind of ended up stumbling into a career in asset management um, kind of by accident. It was the job I was able to get and uh, spent almost 30 years working at JP Morgan Asset Management, where I ended up running something called Retirement Solutions, which is the group that looks after uh, products that have stocks and bonds, so balanced portfolios, and specifically was asked to take a look at building products that would end up in retirement plans and defined contribution plans. So 401k plans in in the US, uh, DC in the UK, and um, ended up designing and running JP Morgan's target date funds, which are what Americans use for default investing um, when they're sort of automatically signed up instead of, you know, the defaults you see in a managed account type program in in the UK, we have target date funds. And so I built Mm -hmm. and managed those. Um, and I realized, you know, I guess five or six years ago that one of the things that I'd really done is integrated a lot of the knowledge that I have, sort of scientific behavioral economics knowledge about how people behave with their money into the way I develop products. But I actually was very interested in that because I made all those disaster mistakes myself and I was I think a very typical person who was juggling credit card debt and bought too much house and like, how do you manage all of that? And so for me, it was very important to reflect that behavior in the products we designed. But also now with the book, what I really want to do is help people understand that it is possible to kind of navigate your way through your own financial wiring. And it's possible to understand why you do what you do and figure out some hacks, if you will, to get around some of that behavior, but also just to forgive yourself, right? And that's a big part of my book. There's a lot that I would like to cram into our time together with what you just spoke about there. And a lot of it resonates actually with kind of, I mean, I'd never 
read financial thrillers <laughs> uh, I <know>. and, <laughs> and I definitely never dreamt of being an investment bank or being in that industry at all. Um, but one thing that did grab me from the beginning of your book is when you talk about um, sort of going to pay with your credit card when you were kind of at the airport and it got declined. Um, that really resonated with me actually, because that is the very reason why I'm here now. It's why I'm interested in money. It's why I create content about money. Um, it took for me to get to kind of like almost like a rock bottom. I don't know if you felt like that then. I don't know whether that was kind of a feeling that you're feeling at the time. But for me, it was kind of like, oh my God, I actually know nothing about money here. I cannot buy anything with my credit card now. What do I do? And that kind of led me down this rabbit hole of what is money? You know, how do I manage money? How do I make money? All those things. So for me, I actually needed it because if I, that didn't happen to me, I probably would have just cruised through life. Like you said, getting the biggest house I probably possibly could the most, you know, the most financed car I could. So that that for me really resonated. Um, and then what you're talking about there, about behavior, can you elaborate a little bit more uh, kind of how how you think uh, kind of our potentially maybe childhood or kind of things that happen in our life? Most people, money's just money, right? Like what's, yeah. what's, our, what's our behavior got to do with it? So I think there are two things that are important here. One is you know, there's a whole academic field called behavioral, behavioral economics, um, and it really tries to help us understand why people don't do the economically rational thing all the time. And that's because we value things differently than the sheer economics would tell us. So if you had a chance of winning $100 or losing $100 and it was 50-50, you know, you theoretically should be indifferent to having somebody give you $100 or having somebody take $100 from you because, you know, it's even odds, like, fine, I don't care, except you're not indifferent at all to that, mm -hmm. right? Like, like losing that 100 bucks is going to hurt yeah. a lot and winning the 100 bucks will be nice, like, that's nice, but not, you know, they're, they're not in balance, right? Yeah. And so that's, you know, one of the fundamental insights that I think, you know, economics as a, as a, Theory is great, and it explains a lot about how the world works. But when you actually look at how people make financial decisions, the things they choose to do, the risks they tend to take, they're not rational. And, no. you know, there are a couple of key ones. One is this fear of loss, right? Losing hurts way more than winning. Um, another one that is particularly important, I think, when managing money, and it's it's even more acute now, I think, than it was when I was young, and having that that little credit card challenge um, is is delaying things right now for some future payoff is is also painful. Like it causes us pain to say no to something in the moment, whether it's buying the thing or eating the cookie. Right? Like it it hurts to deny yourself pleasure, even if your rational brain knows, oh, in the future it'll be so much better when. Right? That still is a very hard almost physically hard thing to do for people. And so I think that is the fundamental reason why saving for retirement stinks. I mean, it's just it's just no fun, right? Like you're taking something away from yourself. You're putting it towards this goal that's all about like thinking about when you're going to die. Like like where's where's the fun in that, right? So so there's the, that's sort of wiring, right? We're all born with wiring somewhere on this scale of how 
much impulse control we have, right? For present versus future consumption. I think I score rather poorly on that personally. <laughs> um, actually, I don't have a big loss. Like I'm very rational when it comes to taking risks. Like I, mm. I actually score pretty weirdly on that one too. Like I'm a little out, out of balance on both of those things. Like I'm super present focused and I'm super like even so odds, I'll take that risk. I understand mm. how it's going to work. Um, but then there's something else. So that's like the nature side of thing. And then there's the nurture side of things, right? What were you taught growing up? What did you observe? Was money this secret scary thing that people didn't talk about and it was always whispered? Or were, was there a lot of transparency, right? Was it seen as and, and treated as something that was connected to emotions, whether they're good or bad emotions, or was it just a neutral thing, right? Mm -hmm. And so those kinds of you know, we we talk about trauma or financial trauma, but those sorts of experiences that get embedded in us when we're really young also really influence our ability then to navigate some of these decisions and whether or not we equate self-worth, right, and happiness with some of the financial decisions that we're making, which, you know, sort of abstractly, like what what's up with that, right? Mm. That why like there's no reason for that to happen except i think a lot of that gets wired into us when we're little so you know i tell a lot of stories in my book about that but and i've interviewed a lot of people who share their stories and one very common thread i see in people who are managing their money successfully is typically uh having someone when they were very young or certainly you know teenager before they're adults right teach them how to do it and if mm -hmm. you didn't get those lessons early you know, you learn them painfully later. Yeah, uh, absolutely. I never linked kind of how I thought of money to past experience, childhood, what I was taught. I mean, innately, it's pretty obvious. If you're not taught it, how would you know it? But you just think I earn money and, you know, it goes to my bills. And then if I've got anything left, then, you know, I will sp spend it or hopefully save it. Obviously, nobody ever does that. Um, and the option at a young age of, are you going to put money in a pension? I mean, in the UK, we've got the uh, auto-enrollment sort of scheme whereby in 2012, people were forced essentially to do it. That's probably the best thing that's ever happened. I mean, I don't know if you agree. That's probably the best thing that's ever happened in the UK for pensions anyway. I was at a, a, a conference last summer with the pensions regulators and uh, said uh, that I had pensions envy and mm. was pretty much booed. And I was like, no, no, seriously, I have pensions <laughs> envy because one thing I really envy about the UK, I, I actually ran a global team and was responsible for the the uh, initiatives uh, that we were taking to find contribution pensions sort of globally. So mm. spent a lot of time in the UK and the UK regulators have been at least very conscious about trying to create a system that I think adapted some things like auto enrollment that that mm. the idea originated in the US, but we haven't implemented it, right? So mm. so we're kind of taking baby steps towards that. But this this sort of automatically signing people up and giving them the choice to opt out if they want to is very powerful because most people know they should. Mm. And and I talk a lot about this in my book as well. Like it's the more obstacles, right, the more decisions that we ask people to make, the easier it is to do nothing. And so if yeah. you have to choose to do something that's painful, which is save money for the future, and, and you're worried about, should I do it? How much do I do it? What if I do it wrong? I have to put my money in something. I have to make choices. Like the whole thing gets very fraught emotionally. Yeah. And so if you take all those decisions away from somebody and automatically enrollment, uh, enroll them, as you say, it's the best thing that ever happened. And you can look at countries like Australia that did this 25, 30 years ago now, and you know, it works really well. Mm.
Yeah, no, absolutely. I mean, most people in the UK that I speak to that don't actively seek out this information don't even know what auto enrollment is. They just they just get a payslip, and if they ever look at it, it says pension. They just go, "Oh, I guess I've got to pay that." Um, so that I mean, that is by far kind of the default. Let's well, get people saving for the pension and take the burden away from the government. The the beautiful thing about that too is is when you start doing it, you know, for generations that are now entering the workforce, like you may have noticed, like your payslip is smaller. Like so, you notice the initial, like, "Ooh, wait, what happened to me?" Right. But if you yeah. do it when you start. You never know any different, right? So it's never been part of the money. So I think as as more and more young people enter the workforce, right, that just becomes natural. The the one observation I would make about the UK system and, and the schemes that have been set up is the default rate, I think, is probably lower than it yeah. could be if you really do want to achieve sort of the same lifestyle after you retire. So so you know, I would say that you really need to be putting in between 10 and 15% of your pay packet. Mm -hmm. And that's more than you're getting defaulted into, right? And we could talk yeah. about how you get to those high levels, because that's also very hard to do all at once. Yeah, no, I think it's 8%, is it? Five, five. Yeah, it's eight, five, five from you and three from your employer, right? <laughs> yeah. So, so, which is better really than nothing, but get up absolutely. I think once way you get, better than nothing. once you get to a decent employer, the upper decent in quotes, people who look after the employees or in the public sector. I mean, I was a police officer for five years, and so my pension scheme was better than most, obviously, being a defined benefit. Um, but that, even that, I mean, I talk about this quite a lot. It, the scheme, those schemes are seen as, you know, the gold standard in the UK of you get, you get a guaranteed income at a certain age. I did five years as a police officer. And I mean, a large chunk of my pay went, went into the pension. And I thought, well, I'm obviously built up something here. Um, I left the police just after the pandemic and I called up the pension scheme and said, oh, well, I mean, uh, must be something here because it's coincided with me learning about money. So I was like, oh, what, what, what is my guaranteed salary? And it worked out to be a thousand pounds a year um guaranteed from when i'm 60 onwards um which anybody listening knows full well that's um one tenth of the state pension and that's five years of cont contributing quite a bit of my my salary one of the challenges with defined benefit and I, I i think it is a gold standard but i think it's not all bad that we're not all on defined benefit schemes anymore because most mm. of those schemes work that they're very back-ended so the real benefits start accruing right in the last sort yeah. of 10 years or so of your employment. And I, I would argue maybe back when they were the gold standard and, you know, everybody had one that, you know, many people did not benefit from them very well because they moved to employers and today, right. People change jobs all the time. I mean, you're a great example of that. So, so that whole scheme doesn't work for a highly mobile workforce. And so the defined contribution schemes really are an attempt to try to replicate some of those features. The problem is nobody guarantees it, right? So you have to mm -hmm. make sure that, and I, I do think schemes in the UK and the US, frankly, are quite well run and the fiduciaries and the trustees do a good job of looking after their members. But I do think that you do need to pay a little more attention, right, than you might otherwise have to uh, for a DB yeah. scheme. And yeah. there is no guarantee, right? So you do have to uh, inform yourself about some of the risks that you're going to need to navigate because mm. of that. Yeah, no, definitely. I mean, for anybody who's listening who doesn't know that, I'm sure that you do. But would you mind just quickly, briefly explaining the difference between DC, yep. defined, defined contribution yep. and defined benefit? Absolutely. So defined benefit is, and actually both of these names are what they say, right? Defined benefit means that the benefit is defined 
by the rules of the scheme and your employer. So it's often some percentage of your final pay, assuming you've been paying in for X number of years, often it's 20, 25, 30, 40 in the US, first responders, right? Policemen, firemen, the, the military are entitled to a pension typically after 20 years. Very few employers in the US still have DB schemes, but those that do, it's typically 30 or 35 years. Maybe teachers mm -hmm. are a little earlier or it's an age you have to be 65 and have had at least 20 or 30 years in. Um, and they're defined, like what you get is a fraction of your salary. So it's defined, right? That the benefit, the pay packet you get is defined and it's also guaranteed. So the entity that is paying you, if it's the police, if it's the fire department, it's the local government, right? They're guaranteeing that they will pay that. In the US, those guarantees are a little wobbly because they're basically going to use taxpayers' money to pay those. And there's been a few instances of a few of these schemes coming into some trouble. Um, companies, right, that still offer schemes are similar, but the company is guaranteeing it. And there, there are a whole bunch of regulations and oversight uh, basically overseeing whether or not the the authorities judge that the scheme is being well run and will in fact have the money to, money to pay the members and there's insurance. So corporate schemes are typically a little less uh, prone to changing than maybe maybe the public schemes might be. But, but it's all guaranteed, right? You know what you're going to get. There's a formula. It's very defined, right? Mm -hmm. Defined contribution, on the other hand, what is defined is what you choose to contribute. In the UK, there's a minimum amount that you'll be contributing, which is this 8%, right? Which is partially from you and partially from your employer. But that's defined what's going in. What's going to be available to you coming out on the other end is dependent on how much you've actually chosen to put in, how it's been invested, how well the markets have done, and when you choose to start taking your pot out, right? So there's some age requirements on when you can take it. Um, there are a whole bunch of choices to make when you hit that point of retiring. Do you, you know, there was something in the UK called pensions freedoms, right? Which said you used to have to buy an annuity with that money. And then they said, never mind, annuities, you don't need to do that. I would argue annuities actually kind of make uh, some sense for many people. So you shouldn't say poo-poo, I don't want that. Um, that guarantee is really important, um, especially now that interest rates have come up a bit. It's not quite as painful to buy that guarantee. So we can talk mm -hmm. about that if you want to. But but um, that the defined contribution basically means that you, the individual, are bearing the burden of the outcome. Mm -hmm. So you hope the markets do well, you hope you're disciplined, and you hope that when you retire, right, you're going to make wise choices and figure out how to take the money out of your pots in the right way. So DC, defined contribution, is something that lends itself to knowing what you're doing, doesn't it, to an extent, or having a professional by your side towards the end to at least advise you. But I think it seems a lot more scary to people, and that's why pensions are A, boring, and B, scary, because... There's so much, I mean, what do you mean stock market? What do you mean my money's invested? Like people think it's, people often think of a pension as this guaranteed pension, like savings pot essentially. Um, and when I describe sort of um, investing to somebody who's knows nothing about it or is treated as gambling, you say to them, well, you, you know, do you have a, do you have a workplace pension? And the answer, you know, nine times out of 10 is yes. Um, you know, that money is invested. So trying to explain to people that that's, um, they are investors inadvertently somebody else is doing on their behalf uh, which as we discussed is a good thing 
But trying to get people to understand it and learn about investing, certainly from a young age, is one of the most challenging things I'm sure you faced it all the time too. But for me, it's one of the most challenging things about the content that I create because it almost comes across as quite scammy. I mean, even if I'm not talking about cryptocurrency, which is obviously another level of scamming, but to this, to the, even if you're just talking about investing in the S&P 500, people are like, well, hold on, I can lose money. And, in, and then it, obviously this whole chain of events and people just go, they put their hands up and say, no, too risky. I'm going to go put my money in the savings account here that's guaranteed to lose me money because of inflation. Yeah, I I always say that there are very few things that you can do wrong when you're saving and investing, but there are two big ones that are just outright wrong. One is not saving at all. That's mm -hmm. wrong. That's a mistake. The second mistake is to put it, as you say, in a typical savings account with your you know a high street financial services institution because you're not going to get paid enough interest to keep up with inflation. And I know that's yeah. much higher in the UK than it's been recently in the US. So that's yeah. that's a real you're you're watching your money evaporate when you don't yeah. have it invested, but. One of the things that I think has been particularly challenging in the UK as they shift into this defined contribution regime is for better or for worse, Americans have had another 30 years of exposure to it. And I think historically, mm. a much higher percentage of Americans has been sort of familiar with and comfortable taking some stock market risk for themselves. Yeah. Absolutely. So there's a little bit more of a culture of it. That's a little, you know, there's the, the we're a little higher on the learning curve. I'd say most yeah. people don't understand a lot about it. I, I will also add that if you're in a workplace pension scheme, you're the trustees who oversee that are professional investors and they are obligated to act in the members best interests. And again, I think most of those schemes do an extraordinarily good job in managing members' money. The, the challenge is, of course, that there's no guarantee that the markets will go up all the time. In fact, I can guarantee you that they will not go up all the time. Mm. But but history will show us, and there's no reason to think that this will be any different in the future. The markets always go up over time, mm. right? So it's not all the time, it's over time. And that is something that is very frightening when you are living again in a society today where it used to be, right, that you had to go physically look at the newspaper to actually mm -hmm. understand what was going on in the financial markets, right? You had to get a copy of the FT. You had to go look at the tables in the back of the newspaper to see these little tiny numbers in two-point font. And if you were listening to the news, there'd be like a two-minute section at the end of the newscast that would talk a little bit about that. Now we are bombarded with financial information, and a lot of it is fabulous, like what you're doing with your podcast. I'd argue some of it is not so fabulous, right? And mm -hmm. it's it's designed to get clicks and eyeballs and and we know that people pay attention to stuff that is scary and not psychologically healthy. And so it's basically training us to be overly attentive to every little tiny blip that happens in the markets. And I think that's a very dangerous thing. Mm -hmm. um, there's a lot of evidence that shows when people self-manage their own retirement pots. And these are studies I know that have been done in the US. I, I, I'm assuming it would be the same in the UK. <clears throat> I haven't seen it. But in the US, when individuals get in there and try to manage their own retirement accounts, they typically do a lot worse than the default scheme does. Mm. Because they're, because, because they're they worried scared. and they do things. They yeah. get scared, they sell. You know, 
the classic way to make money is to buy low and sell high, <laughs> right? But our brains, right, back to that fear of loss, don't want to buy when things are scary. They want to sell because, oh, what if it goes down more? I better sell now. Yeah. And then it starts going up again. And I'm like, yeah, I'm not going to get fooled, right? I know what's going to happen. <laughs> You're not going to get me into this sucker's trap, right? And then it goes yeah. up and up and up and up. And then you go, oh, it's feeling better again. It's safe to invest again. And in the meantime, you've lost money and you've bought it higher and you're destroying your money, right? So I think many people are much, much better off just sticking in a default scheme. Yeah, no, absolutely. And that's why knowledge is so important because I think it, that's one of the things that shocked me when I started learning about money and certainly stock markets is the fact that it isn't just a simple supply and demand. It's it's fair with the stock market. A lot of it's to do the sentiment and news and what's anticipated and what's going to happen here. And then people buy the stock. So it's 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 all emotion driven. Well, and you buy the news and sell the sell the yeah. you buy the rumor, sell the fact, right? Exactly. So you're you're. I mean, I did this for a living for thirty years, right? And and we manage these tactical calls, right, where you're mm. trying to position yourself against an, a benchmark. And you know, over time, we made money, but it's it's a hard way to make money, and it's really easy to lose money fast if you do it badly. So it's it's definitely yeah. something. I don't recommend most people try to do by themselves because because that fear greed thing, you know, there were a team of 30 people with lots of software and rules mm. and governance around how we made these decisions. And even then it was, you know, we didn't make money every year. Yeah. So for obviously automation is, the you know, everybody's friend when it comes to investing. Um, certainly if you want to sort of step back and just let it grow over time and have no sort of interest in it. What's your approach then for the average person who just wants to put money away? And I know you've got your system that I really like and we'll get into next. Um, I think everybody needs a financial system or framework to work from. So we'll step forward just briefly because we're talking about it now anyway. Um, in the UK, and I guess a lot of the stuff from the US, people like Dave Ramsey, all have a similar kind of approach where it's very much like just dollar cost average by every month, regardless of what's happening, um, and put it in, you know, into index funds or mutual funds, you know, managed or not managed, depending on what you want. I personally like index funds because I'd, I'd I'd rather keep the fees low. What's what's what what is your approach? What would you say for the average person who's going to put money away? So for the average person, A, you I hope you already are putting money away in your DC scheme. So that's happening for you. It's also happening in that dollar cost averaging way because every pay packet mm -hmm. a little bit goes in, right? And that is by far the best way to just build wealth over time. Um, if you are investing on top of that, right, for another goal because you want to top up what you've got, um, because you want to buy a vacation home in 35 years, whatever your goal is, right? Um, there are a couple things I think are important. One is there's a big difference between speculating and investing. And I would argue speculating, right? You you mentioned um, uh, cryptocurrencies, right? Uh, or even buying just a single stock or two, right? I think mm -hmm. that starts look veering into speculation because the chances that a good or bad thing will happen to one investment, one company, you know, one thing are infinitely higher than a systemically bad thing happening to something like the the FTSE or the S&P or like an all world stock index, which I'm a big fan of, just get it all yeah. in one place, index it, don't worry about it. So the more actively somebody is trying to make decisions, you know, it could go really well, it could go really badly, right? And so my my advice is to really think about building um, investments that 
take as much risk out of the equation as possible for the individual. So I would say I, I'm I'm absolutely in agreement with with index funds are great. I think to active management rent, like I did it for my career, can add value, but it does cost more money and it doesn't mm-hmm. always add value. And then you need to spend time researching these things and have confidence that you can pick a good manager, which is you know not easy. Um, so I, I would say for most people who don't want to spend a lot of time with this, the fewer decisions you ask yourself to make, the more you can focus on the ones that will really matter to you. And those are two big decisions, right? So you want to spend all your energy on two really big decisions. The first is how much am I saving, right? Am I saving enough money for the goal that I have? The second big decision is how much risk should I be taking with my investments? And that is the mix of stocks and bonds and cash. And those two decisions will influence like 95% of what happens to you. So those are really worth sweating it. The little decisions, should I pick the index fund from company X or company Y? Like, ugh, pick the one with the lower fees, right? It doesn't mm-hmm. matter that much. Um, should I rebalance on my birthday or should I rebalance at the end of the calendar year? Like, ugh, mm-hmm. it doesn't matter. Just do it once, right? Like you can overthink this stuff. Yeah. Um, so how much do you need to save? How do you take risk? And in my book, I walk through, if you're saving for something that's more than 10 years away, let's say it's to top up your own retirement, let's say it's for the dream country house you want to buy when you're 75, whatever the goal is, right? 10, 10, 20 years, you should have a lot of that money in stocks because again, they will almost always go up over these 10-year cycles and they will almost always beat inflation. Certainly once you get 15 years, 20 years, you really should have that money mostly in stocks. When you're less than five years, right, it is quite possible that the stock market will not go up or go up very much over five years. And that's where things like cash and fixed income can really help. So it's it's important to think about how much money do I need and then how long can I leave it alone? Yeah. So those are the two big decisions. The rest of it, I, I believe strongly in minimizing the decisions you have to make because you minimize kind of the chance that you'll either do nothing or pick the wrong thing. Yeah, no, absolutely. I agree. Um, what are your thoughts on Bitcoin? Uh, so I was going to have a whole chapter in my book about cryptocurrency and then all that sort of unfortunate unpleasantness started happening. Um, I, I, I struggle to understand why it exists. Mm. And I'm a big believer that you should be able to tell a story about why, why an asset, right? Stocks are an asset, bonds are an asset, real estate is an asset, um, I need to tell a story about why they will go up over time. And I can't come up with any reason why cryptocurrency should have any value Mm. other than being something you can do things that don't get reported to the authorities. Yeah. But beyond that, I'm just like, I don't know why this stuff exists. I think the technology behind Bitcoin, you know, people are still struggling to figure out how to use it. But that whole blockchain technology, I think, has some really interesting like I'd I'd rather invest in the blockchain technology than invest in crypto. I do neither. Mm. Um, to the best of my knowledge, maybe some <laughs> fund I have somewhere has got some yeah. crypto or some. I, I'm pretty sure there's no crypto. There might be some blockchain investment sitting in there, but I doubt. Mm. I doubt. I'm, I'm almost certain there's no crypto anywhere. Um, and then I think so much of it is so prone to. Um, you used the word scam earlier, right? I think. Because it's relatively illiquid, because it's relatively thinly traded, right? It, it gets very prone, prone to sort of fashion 
And it'll go up a lot and down a lot for reasons that are completely unconnected to any economic reality. So, you know, I'm kind of a big believer that if you can't explain it to your grandparent in like two sentences, don't do it. Yeah. And I have yet to have anybody explain to me why crypto has should have any value or certainly should go up. Like, yeah. So I don't like it. I don't I don't like buying commodities, like a lot of commodities for that reason, too, like gold. I just yeah. why should it go up? Well, ultimate store of value. OK, inflation, maybe. I mean, I don't mm. know. The, the be- I mean, I've I've recently in the last year, I mean, I'm not I don't talk about Bitcoin and cryptocurrency much. I was just interested to hear your thoughts on it. The bit the best um, sort of argument for Bitcoin that I've heard is, I mean, because it's off the back of this sort of 2007, 2008 housing crisis wasn't it that was that's when it was kind of the white paper was released to kind of and it was it is was and is very attractive to people who want to store money outside of the traditional system who don't trust the government and i feel a lot of the things that i listen to with bitcoin or hear people talk about it it's very much this sort of conspiracy theory mindset around it which i don't think is very healthy or helpful to the cause but i think the, the best argument that i've heard is to have a little bit of money that isn't completely, I mean, first of all, it can't be printed away by the government um, and B, can't be controlled by the government. And you're definitely right that, you know, that that's also leads people down the illegal sort of route. But it also means that you can have some money, whether, you know, 1%, 2% of, of you know, of, of your net worth or, or less, um, whereby if anything happens or the government, we end up in a sort of China regime in the West, they can't touch your money. Well, I'll just say if we end up in a China regime in the West, we've got so many other problems that having one or two percent of your money stuck away in Bitcoin <laughs> is like whatever. Yeah. yeah. Um I, I I can see the attraction for individuals who live in countries where it's difficult to legally hold financial yeah. assets outside of their home currency and where their currency yeah. controls and things. I don't know if it's easy to buy Bitcoin though, if you're sitting in a in a world like I don't I don't know. Um, so, so again, one of my philosophies is, is, you know, and I guess I was a a risk manager. Most multi-asset portfolio managers think of themselves as managing risks. Like Mm -hmm. I just think about how badly can stuff go wrong and how binary, right, is the risk. And I think the risk on something like a cryptocurrency, right, is pretty asymmetric, like, Maybe it'll do really, really well, but like there's a whole bunch of cryptocurrencies that have blown up spectacularly, exchanges mm. have failed, money's been stolen. Like, yeah, yeah. I just, that feels very unbalanced. And again, if I can't tell myself a logical story about why it should go up in value, like mm. companies, you know, stocks go up because companies produce goods, right? That consumers buy or businesses buy and they're creating mm. economic, like I just, I can tell that story about real estate. I can tell that story about, mm. um, you know, a whole bunch of assets, but. Yeah. But I think it's also, like you said, um, the the benefit could be to somebody in a China, for example, because they were, they were um, the biggest miners of Bitcoin, I believe, until they banned Bitcoin. And there's still, I think, 20 to 30% of mining happening there. So even though it's illegal in possibly, the you know, potentially one of the, from the West's point of view anyway, the worst countries to live in, to have a government like that, it's still happening. So we can't really see a use case in, in, in the West because our money, even though our money is broken, it really is broken. And inflation is completely eroding 
you know, the, the, the value of our money. We, we, like you said, you can't tell a story. And I, I totally agree with you. There is no story for the average person. Why would I need Bitcoin? That's just something that happened in 2020 that did well. And then now it's gone back down again. Yep. And the, the world is full of things like that, going back to mm. tulips, right? I mean, you know, yeah. we, can, we can look at a lot of things like that. So, oh, absolutely. Yeah. Sorry, you went off on a tangent then, but I was intrigued to see to, to yeah. what you and what you thought. I, I, I don't like investing in things I don't understand. And I think yeah. to me, it's, you know, I've got a little set of tips that I that I put it somewhere in the book. And, and it, it basically, like, if you can't explain it to your grandmother, don't do it. If you feel stupid asking questions about it, or somebody makes you feel stupid when you ask a question about it, don't do it, right? That's mm. that's the sign of a hustle. Yeah, no, absolutely. Um, so I want to move on to your framework in the book. Um, you like to walk me through Stash and and, and, and what it is. Yeah, so Stash is is an acronym that 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 uh, we came up with just to help people think about the steps that they should be going through, and it stands for five things, right? Stash, save for a rainy day. So I think the absolute most important thing anybody should have is an emergency savings fund. I know some employers who are using schemes like Nest, right, have started piloting the use of this emergency savings fund that is sitting next to your pension scheme. And I think that's a brilliant way to help people do it. I didn't know anything about that. Um, I'm a nerd here, so what can I say? <laughs> that's really nerdy that's things idea. about your pension system. Um, <laughs> so hopefully that gets more broad, widely adapted. But to me, an emergency savings fund, right? Save for that rainy day. Um, I call it your oh, can I can I swear on this podcast? Absolutely, go ahead. Um, I say it's your oh shit fund. Like when something happens and you go, oh shit, what am I going to yeah. do now? Right? That's that's what you've got. This pot of money that's there just for emergencies. Yeah. Um, the second is to make sure that you're taking advantage of tax-aware savings, right? So tax-advantage savings, that's your DC scheme, that's your pension pot. The third thing you should be doing is assessing your budget and making sure that you're, well, once you've got your emergency fund sorted, as you're starting to save for your tax-aware savings, and in the UK, again, that kind of happens for you. Mm-hmm. You should be sticking with that. Then the third thing you need to think about is how can I pay down any high interest rate debt? So, you know, you should really tackle the emergency savings fund. You should make sure you're contributing something into your tax advantage saving. It may or may not be at the 8% level, your 5% plus the employer's three. But one of the things I talk about in my book is the importance of getting all the free money. Make sure you get all the match Mm. because in the U.S., employers will match a percentage of what you put in. And so if you don't put anything in, you don't get anything from them. So getting the free money is like, why would get the free money? Um, Once you've gotten all the free money, you may not want to keep contributing up to the amount that you really should be. And again, I would say that's for most people, probably somewhere north of 10%. Maybe you just stop at 5%, get all the free money, and then you tackle that long-term debt, right? So assess your budget, make sure you're paying down any high interest rate credit cards. A lot of Americans have student loan debt. A lot of auto loans are above sort of seven, eight, nine percent And the way I think about that is what return can you reasonably expect from your investments? I think 7% for a U.S. investor is a very prudent amount that's maybe a little bit below some of the more recent long-term averages, but maybe mm-hmm. sort of looking back 20, 30, 40 years, probably I think a, a reasonable sort of assumption to make. And guess what? If it's a little low, then you're going to be happy. I'd far rather plan that way than the other way around, which is assuming a 10% return and then you yeah. undersave, right? So yeah. 
if you're paying off credit card debt in the US is something like 21 to 25% interest rate, right? That's destroying your wealth the more you pay that. So you should take care of that first. Then you should be going back to your tax advantage savings, right? So the S, S, first S is emergency savings, save for a rainy day. Second is tax aware savings. Third is assess your budget. Fourth S is stay the course. Make sure you get up to that full 10% amount, make sure, or 15, depending on how much you're earning. Um, make sure that you're thinking through getting rid of the rest of your debt. And then last but not least, the H is have fun, right? What else are you saving for? What else can you do with your disposable income? Yeah, no, I love it. I think I needed it. And for me, there's um, there's a guy in the UK called Pete Matthew. He does uh, probably the most successful financial podcast. I don't know if you've heard of him in the UK, but he's almost like Dave Ramsey-ish, but not yeah. as, not as you know, as... Um, Full on. <laughs> yeah. But him and Dave Ramsey, I mean, when I, because I had credit card debt, that's what I needed to get out of first. Dave Ramsey was obviously brilliant for that. Um, and I feel like, what you're saying there, kind of you, you take, you could, you learn from being quite intense, kind of you got to learn all the stuff. The learning curve is quite steep to go from nothing to, okay, I'm going to learn about tax efficient accounts and I'm going to learn to assess my budget. Most people who don't do budgets, like even, even the people that follow me on social media, you know, comment on my posts, when I then actually get to speak to them and say, okay, well, you know, do you do your budget? And they go, ah, no, I don't really. Most people just don't. Do I it. struggle with budgeting. I'll be honest. I mean, this explains why I had so much trouble. I think about it in sort of big buckets, yeah. but I don't. I don't get really granular with it. I mean, I do have a budget. I shouldn't say I don't budget, but it's mm. it's very high level. But that's. I mean, that's because you're probably very aware and well practiced with paying yourself first and putting money away already first. I think most people. Um, like I said at the beginning, it's very much you get paid and bills go out and then it always gets to zero. It just magically always happens. And then you go, I will put money away one day and then it never actually happens. Yep. So for me, I mean, that that's the that's the learning curve that I really, even still after, you know, maybe three or four years of doing this and talking to people regularly, I'm still trying to find the best way to convince somebody to do that. Yeah. One of the things that I say that's different from some others is, is, I, I really strongly encourage people to start saving first for that rainy mm. day fund rather than just focus on credit card debt is because when that emergency happens, it'll go right back on your card and you'll yeah. just get yourself, you'll dig yourself a bigger hole and then you'll need to borrow money to pay your interest, right? And you don't want to do that. And and I also think that even if you're building it up very slowly and you're putting in 50 pounds a month or something, I mean it still is a psychologically powerful thing when you look back after a year of 50 pounds a month and you go, whoa, mm. that's, six, that's 600 pounds. Like yeah. that will pay for a car repair. That will pay, that that is something that should something happen, you need to put new tires on your, like whatever it is, right? You've got that money and it's not going back on your card. Mm. Then you tackle, like you get that. And then the classic advice is three to six months living expenses because that's really what you should be thinking about worst case job loss, right? How do I get through that three months? Mm -hmm. It's a little different in our country where we get no unemployment insurance typically or very little. Um, mm -hmm. But, uh, you know, it's, it's, it's how do we think about that? That what do yeah. I do next? Where does that come from? But so that I differ a little bit there from from maybe some other yeah. advice. I think, it, from, like I said earlier, for me, it was very much I had to be backed into a corner and have literally nowhere to go for me to do this. Otherwise, I wouldn't have done it. And I think 
um, because there is a bit of that safety net in the UK, whether it's the state, I mean, I know the US has similar kind of things, but whether it's um, being on benefit because you, you employment benefit or state pension, um, people, the sentiment in the UK is very much that's there. So I don't really kind of need to, to worry too much about it because worst case scenario, when I come to retire, I've got £10,000 a year, which is a horrendous standard of living in the UK right now. Um, but so many people I speak to, even in my personal life, that's that's what they're relying on. Yeah, that's... Um, I'm sure you must say this to people, but like, have you thought about what that would be like? Like, where yeah. would you live and what would you eat? Yeah. But I mean, it's been. But, you know, one of the, ones, the things I want to talk to you about is the time horizon. And for me, that changed massively. And it really did actually yeah. come from what you're talking about was with saving originally, because I've never been a saver ever until I started learning about money. And now I've gone, if anything, too far the other way, um, where I'm more, I'm more of a hoarder. <laughs> so I've got, I went from my wife, who obviously when we first got together, my girlfriend was very good with money, never had a credit card. She's still to this day, never had a credit card in her life has always avoided debt, just kind of innately. She's never she's never been taught the stuff, uh, not from her parents or anything, but she just kind of, she just knew to stay away from it and save up and buy stuff. Um, whereas for me, I was very much like happy to just be like, oh, well, let's just get a financed car. Um, never had anything extravagant or anything, but I always got to zero. Um, she always had savings. I never had savings. And as soon as I started learning about money and took that first step of, oh, okay, oh I've looked at my bank account. I've now got, a th- I mean, I remember the first time I ever had a thousand pounds that, wasn't earmarked for anything sitting in an account. And, and for me, that was like, that was genuinely life-changing because I mean, that's double what most people have in the UK anyway. Most people don't have 500 pounds for a minor emergency. I know it's the same in the US, but having that thousand pounds sitting there going, oh, okay, I can breathe a little bit better because if something does go wrong, I'm okay. And then suddenly I start thinking more about the future and I'm worrying about retirement age, something that I've never, ever thought about. That That is to me the best story to tell about why you do want to start saving a little bit, Mm. even if you still have some credit card debt and things to pay down, because that sense of accomplishment and power and stress reduction makes Mm. it literally easier to make those decisions when your your present self doesn't, I don't want to not buy this thing. I want to do that. I want to go out for drinks. I want to do that, right? You've got this little child that's like, I want to do it now. And the the less stress you're under, the easier it is to make decisions like that, right? And so mm. I think we underestimate the the confidence and the sort of, it's a strange word to use, serenity that you start mm. building when you know you've got a few things sorted out like that. I think it is an enormously powerful boost to you continuing to make decisions that are maybe against what you kind of want to do now as you get better and better right maybe as you say you're tipping the other way although as you shared with me maybe you're going to go on a little <laughs> holiday now so good for that's you for true. spending that money that's true uh, that was a mo- for a good cause <laughs> yeah i would have spent uh, less my wife definitely chose the amount we're spending on me yeah well but, but you know <laughs> but fair, right it. yeah fair. no i think you need to have the balance 100 percent, and i think it's gone almost the other way she now forces me to spend money i'm i'm very much let's I'm, i mean i do spend money but she she's very much right, we need to enjoy the money that we're earning. And I'm very much thinking of the long term. She's thinking of the short term. Yeah. And and that's actually a fabulous sounding partnership, right? Because that mm. that's that's kind of what you need to be balancing. And and that's the, that's the other thing I really think is important is what I hope most people learn from things like this podcast or from my book are 
you are always making choices, even if you don't know you're making them, that will have consequences about the funds you have in your life now and in the future. Mm. And I'm not here to tell you that maybe this is the not Dave Ramsey message, right? I'm not here to tell you that you have to do it this way or you have to do it that way, or you should never rent or you should never have a mortgage or you should never have credit card debt, right? What I what I really want people to understand is there are consequences to the decisions that you're making. And once you understand the consequences, you might make different decisions. And it's much better to know that now than figure it out when you're 55, Right. Mm. And when when you don't have time, I talk a lot about the power of time and the power of time when people are in their 20s and 30s is like rocket fuel. It is magic. It is so powerful. Right. Earning that 7% return that I mentioned, your money will double every 10 years. So the 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 pound, the dollar that you save in your 20s is going to be worth like eight times that much when you're in your 60s. Mm. So if you're trying to amass a certain pot size to do something, right, the earlier you start saving it and investing it, like the the less you have to save, right? So to me, that's that's magic, right? But but if you want to spend some of that now and are choosing a, a consequence, like that's okay. Like, you know, I, I was talking to somebody the other day who was like, so you're going to tell me not to buy lattes. And I'm like, look, if you're, I'm not latte shaming anybody, right? If that coffee is what, what, is like the highlight of your morning when you go into your local coffee shop and one of the two baristas is already always there and they know your name and they say hi and you have a lovely chat and you sit there for 15 minutes and you go through your email before you go like that that's a like who am i to tell you not to do that just know right that if you're doing that maybe you should not do something else in your life right so it's 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 not about saying these are bad or these are good choices it's like understand the consequences of the choices yeah intentionality is the word that I use. Exactly. Intentionality and making sure that the money you're spending is aligned with what you value in your life. Because I think it's really easy to get sucked into back to the why I think it's harder today. Um, Social media advertisements, targeted adverts, right? You Mm. put one word once in a search engine and the product follows you forever, right? Like all that stuff just makes it much harder to be disciplined. Yeah, no, absolutely. I, I totally agree with everything you said then. On the being harder for sort of millennials, Gen Zs, I'm in that millennial category. Um, and obviously we hear about how boomers had it easier, you know, the houses are so cheap and now everything's so expensive. And I'm sure it's generationally that's always happened ever since um, inflation ever existed. Um, but what sort of what would you say the biggest challenge challenges that you've seen from research in the book and people you speak to? What are the biggest challenges other than social media, which is probably the biggest? People sort of in the millennials, Gen Z, and you know, the people are going to be coming up in the future. It's only going to get probably harder, I'd imagine, with things like AI and social media only getting more prolific. What what other things would you say would kind of affecting people's views towards money and the way that they can save and invest for the future? Well, I think without a doubt, right, some of the biggest ticket items that you can spend money on, and that's a home, a car, and an education are all significantly more expensive today. And I'm talking the median price for a median home versus the median income, right? Those Mm. things are all significantly more expensive. And because they're so big and because so many people have pinned so much perceived or real status to those, I think it 
that feels bad, right? Mm. That feels really bad. Um, I think the housing crisis, certainly in the southern part of England and the sort of greater London area, got out of control way earlier than it did in most American cities. There were always a few like New York and San Francisco that were insane, but it's kind of caught up to the whole U.S. now, right? So everywhere, right, that's true. Um, it doesn't make this problem any less real, but I always feel like I have to point out, and you know, I'm sounding like the boomer um, saying this, the average house and the average car maybe not the average education, are a lot nicer than they were. Mm. Like a lot nicer. They're bigger. They mm -hmm. have nicer things in them. They, you know, in the US, like it's pretty rare not to find air conditioning, stainless steel appliances, marble counter. Like they're just nicer. So yeah, that median price has gone up. You are actually getting a little more for your money. It doesn't feel any mm. better. Like you still don't have it. So like whatever, yeah. I don't care. But, but I would argue that some of what's happening, and it's a good thing, right, is our expectations for what we should be experiencing are higher, right? I think mm. when I grew up, nobody took holidays. Like, what was a holiday? Like, we, I, I think we went on three when I was a kid. Mm. They, they just didn't. Like, yeah. my parents didn't, you know, we had like little tiny holidays, but we that meant going to the seaside. Well, I, I grew up in Honolulu, right? So going to the seaside was like half an hour away. But like, but good. like, okay, so I lived, I lived in a vacation <laughs> destination. But, nobody nobody but, feels sorry for you. <laughs> no, no. Um, we can talk later about that. But, but like, we just didn't. I, I don't know. Like when I went to university, a lot. Of, like what? No. Like mm. I remember the year we drove to Disney World. Boy, was that crazy, right? Like it's like they're big, memorable yeah. events. People. So, so I think. It, Part of it is a reflection of the society we're living in today and the choices we are making with our money. Like if you're choosing to go on holidays, is going to be hard to save up that down payment, right? So uh, some of this stuff I think is is a little bit a reflection of uh, like the normalization of, and I would say some of that's due to social media, right? Like it's just easier to see what everybody else is doing and start normalizing behavior in a different way than was true 50 years ago, right? Or 40 years ago. Hmm. Um and some stuff is a lot cheaper. We just don't notice it. Clothing is so much cheaper than it used to be. Electronics are so much cheaper than they used to be, right? But mm -hmm. we don't we don't notice that, right? All we notice is the stuff that's more expensive. But mm -hmm. but that median to median thing is way more difficult. The second thing I would say that is very different for millennials and Gen Z is their coming of age into a world where a baseline assumption is not, it's going to get better. Because, mm -hmm. you know, you could, and I suspect this was a little different in the UK, right? The, U, the US, right? The 50s, the 60s, right? When I was growing up, even notwithstanding the Arab oil crisis, the embargo, the power, you know, the lines, the gas lines, right? It was still the sense of optimism and it's going to keep getting better. And yeah. I just don't think... That's the way most people I talk to in their 20s and 30s feel. Certainly my kids don't feel that way. And they're in their mid-20s. Like they're just like, oh, it's a disaster out there, right? So this yeah. assumption, right, that there's going to be this capacity for growth that the, I think it's very rational to assume that the economy will still grow and the markets will go up and investments will have positive returns. But I, I don't think that Gen Zs and millennials are willing to take that on faith the way I was. And that's partly because of the sort of dot-com crash, great financial crisis, pandemic, right? There have been some pretty catastrophic things that have happened over the last 20 years, right? That 25 years that have really 
changed, I think, the perception of of how the world should work. Yeah, no, that's that's definitely true. I think the general consensus is, you know, and that is again social media being the biggest devil here because everyone mm-hmm. sees the bad news all the time, and it doesn't matter where you turn. I mean, I get I try and turn off notifications on my phone all the time because probably five times a day I get a news notification, and I don't even know what I don't even know what it, it just comes with my Samsung phone. And it just it tells me anything like this person's died, this person's died, this person's died. And I, th- I literally four or five times a day, a fire's broken up. There's been an earthquake, and a volcano's you know erupted, and people are dying. This is information that is it, it's, it's so far away from me. I shouldn't be absorbing it all straight away. So you know, I'm thinking things are getting worse, and that's the general in the UK. Definitely, you're right. I think everybody thinks oh the government are useless and i'm not denying that they're not but th- that is you know that <laughs> <laughs> well it's, we could play a really unhappy game here comparing what's going on with the respective yes. governments yeah. of our countries here <laughs> yeah. but i don't know yes yeah, i mean it doesn't from over here it doesn't seem like it's going great but i mean it's hey the, our government didn't shut down for the third time in six weeks yay yeah i mean really <laughs> it's, the, it's yeah. the small wins it's the small wins but i think in the u.s i think that's something that i've thought about quite a lot recently actually is how americans are are just generally, and there might be a stereotype, but generally more positive about the future and more, we can do this kind of that American, you know, yeah, you know, the American dream is alive kind of thing. Uh, in the UK, that just doesn't exist. It just, I mean, I, I, I grew up in, sorry, to sorry I, I grew up in South Africa. So the culture that I grew up in was a bit more kind of like, oh yeah, we're going to go out there and do it because if we didn't feel like everything was okay, but everything could get better. Um, I moved to the UK when I was, 13 14 and the the culture here is it's almost it's that tall poppy syndrome you see somebody doing doing well over there it's all great for a little bit until they do too well and then it's like no no you you can't you no no stop whereas i feel like in america it's more it's more accepted and celebrated that people are doing well Uh, i think that latter is definitely true i i do think that the sort of naive optimism that I can remember. And maybe it's just because I was younger and you just maybe are more optimistic when you're younger. Mm. Uh, but that's not tr- true for my kids. Um, I mean, I just always assumed that my standard of living would be equal to or higher than my parents. I don't think my kids feel that way. Yeah. Like I just, I just was like, well, of course it will be because it is getting better. And, you know, I, my grandfather used to tell me stories about riding his horse dusty to school. Like, and he remembered, you know, their farm getting electrified and getting a telephone. And I'm like, you know, those are stories I grew up hearing about, you know, my grandmother pumping well water and, you know, my, my father, you know, and the difference in in life livelihood lifestyle right the economic circumstances of each generation has gotten progressively better partly because society has gotten wealthier right but now i think like we're not seeing those societal gains the same way like you can only maybe wi-fi is sort of like broadband access is a similar thing to electricity but i don't Mm. maybe not like you know so some of that was like that sweep of the 20th century, like taking most of the world from pre-electricity, pre-plumbing, right? To like Mm -hmm. a hundred years later, and we've all got, or many people have got air conditioning. Like, okay, so that, that was a pretty big change, right? That's not, it'll happen in different ways, but that like your physical comfort getting so much more comfortable, you know, and, and my kids, probably won't have the same lifestyle that that my husband and I were able to provide. Mm. 
part of its career choice. Like my younger son is a musician, right? Okay, well, that's <laughs> that's a little different. Uh, my older son, right? I mean, I think they'll be comfortable. I don't, you know, it's... Yeah. So, yeah, yeah. I, I think that there's a little bit of... Um, and, and, you know, who knows? There could be some productivity improvement or some technology breakthrough. I mean, you know, before the telephone was invented, nobody could imagine the telephone, right? So, like, who knows mm -hmm. what's going to happen? I don't want to be too pessimistic here, but but it... That that sense of like, of course, it'll be better. Yeah, I, I appreciate your time is is um, very scarce, and we're running out of time. But one last thing I did want to talk about um, briefly, off the back of what we just spoke about, um, would be AI because I know you briefly you briefly talk about it. Um, that seems like that is going to be the new internet, the new telephone, the new electricity, the new car. That is going to be the thing that drives potentially. Um, as through this productivity, you know, increase, rapid increase. What are your thoughts on AI? Uh, that it has the potential to change everything. And it's way too early to see how it will change everything. And I expect perhaps like electricity, which changed everything. And you look back 150 years ago, right before there was electrification, people's lives are on the one hand radically different. And on the other hand, we're still people doing what we used to do, right? So mm. I think on the one hand, it's going to dramatically change things. And on the other hand, in ways I can't imagine, um, I hope that AI enables people to make better decisions to you know, I, I I saw in my own industry, right, the the report writing for the monthly report on what happened in the financial markets, right, started shifting it actually into much more of a template driven, sort of very primitive kind of AI writing, right, where, where, you know, it used to be that it was like the first year analyst job to sit down and like write this really boring wrote, like, can't make it too exciting, can't put too much personality into it, it's got to be really just, just the facts mm. um, report, and it would take them like a day, okay, when I left, it would take them like an hour to review. Okay, they had time to do more interesting value-added things that were still a great first year out of college job, right? So I hope that plays out in multiple industries, whether it's in manufacturing, whether it's in you know home building. Like I, I think that there are ways you can imagine AI helping you make um, better decisions that will enable what humans, I think, will still be able to do with creativity, right? add value and enjoy what they're doing to a greater degree. But like, who knows? I don't think the robot overlords are going to like take over the world and do bad things, but maybe I'm an optimist. <laughs> yeah. I feel like medical medicine in the medical field, that seems the one that I see like that, that can make the biggest impact of identifying early stage cancers and stuff like that seems uh, like that would be the best use. I, I've had some experience not in medicine, but in financial markets. Right. And Looking at large, complex pools of data and information, mm. right, is something I think AI can do a brilliant job with and often hallucinates, as we're seeing, like, with early AI, like, making stuff up when they don't know the right answer. And, yeah. and so it's just going to be really interesting to see how that plays out. But the potential there certainly is is enormous and exciting. Um, I'm, I'm maybe thinking it's going to change many things less dramatically than we are currently fantasizing but like mm. we'll have to see what happens yeah no absolutely 
And I've really enjoyed this chat. Um, yeah, likewise. I'm, I'm, I'm sure. I'm sure the, the the listeners have too. Um, if there's one thing that you could kind of impart to a listener who wants to improve their finances, if there's just one thing they could go away and implement today, um, what what would you recommend they do? Can I can I do two? Sure. Okay. So two things. One, forgive yourself for any mistakes you made in the past. Just forgive yourself. Like you didn't know better, life was di- tricky, it's okay. Like you're not bad because you made some financial mistakes, just number one. Most important thing you can do is to promise yourself that every time you get some extra money, whether that's a tax refund, a gift, a pay rise, that you take some of it, ideally half of it, and put that towards your savings. That to me is the most important thing you can do. And that's how you start saving more and more money over time without it overwhelming you today. Love it. And let it snowball because it snowballs. And let it, it snowball because it, it, it does. Uh, yeah, you get interested in everything. It all starts. Yeah, you're, you're absolutely right. It all starts with just taking that first step that you've never done before. Brilliant. Yep. Um, and where can people find you, find your book, find any work that you are currently doing? Well, my book is available in the US wherever books are sold and online. Um, I don't know if there'll be physical copies available in the UK, but certainly it can be bought on electronic book services. Um, and they can find me on my website, Anne, A-N-N-E, at A-N-N-E-L-E-S-T-E-R.com. And it would be great to uh, chat about stuff going on uh, in the UK as well. Brilliant. And Lester, thank you very much for your time. Oh, thank you so much. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.